Hi, welcome to Chill Track Friday. Just a quick announcement. We're doing another um, intro to our intro because we have a really wonderful episode. Another one that's a little bit long, so we've split it into two because we didn't want to take out some of this really, really compelling and beautifully told story. So we hope you enjoy. You know, when you get to the high levels of the sport, it's hard um, sometimes to figure out a race strategy, or it was for me. Um, even working closely with Benji, you know, do you, it's top three. So if you're there to make the team, which I was, you know, I felt I had a shot at it. Um, what do you do? Welcome to Chill Track Friday. Hello, hello, running nerds. I'm Anne. I'm Ali. And it, this is a surprise. Where's where's the coffee? What's going on? What is this? <laughs> <laughs> we have cake instead. What kind of cake is this, Anne? It is chocolate cake with coffee and a mo- mocha mascarpone icing. Mm. So there's coffee still. The coffee's in solid form. Okay. <laughs> it's actually really good. What? There's a little bit of history behind this cake, or, you know, there's a story behind this cake. I don't know about history. That would make it sound like it's like <laughs> six months old, this cake, but, <laughs> but there is um, a story. Can you tell There's me? story and history. Um, well, I saw the recipe online. It's a, it's a recipe from uh, Bon Appetit, and I love chocolate and I love coffee, so I was like, I'm going to make this. And then I was like, but what for? And then I realized I had a reason. So I made it as a going away present to my injury, which is sinus tarsi syndrome. So I decorated the cake and I wrote sayonara sinus tarsi. (laughs) You're such a nerd. (laughs) And so we're like eating the cake, which is symbolically annihilating my injury. Can we clink the forks instead of? um, Yes. I don't even know if that went through, but. Mm, It's really good. It's very chocolatey and coffee-y. So the coffee that I used in the cake is actually Nespresso because it called for espresso. So I just used a shot of Nespresso. But then the icing asked for um, uh, instant instant coffee. And I did not have instant coffee and I was not going back to the store. So I just decided to use grounds. And so there's chunks of coffee beans in the icing, which I was not supposed to do it that way. I was way. wondering why it was a little bit grainy. <laughs> what did you do with the N from the Nespresso? I'm sorry? <laughs> <laughs> What? I said, what did you do with the N of Nespresso? Because it only asked for espresso. Oh. <laughs> You're talking about nerd. <laughs> anyway, I'm so happy because you are coming back from an injury. And we had a... You ran the Washington Heights 5K this morning. I did. I ran it as like a... You know, I was just going to see how I felt. And I felt pretty yeah. good. I did it like a tempo effort. That's great. Welcome, welcome back. Thank you. I, I think it must have been the cake. I, I don't know. Injuries don't go away that quickly. <laughs> Wait, no, it's been 16 weeks. Yeah. 19, 20 no, weeks. 20. <laughs> 20 weeks, which is like the length of a marathon training cycle if you're a beginner. Yeah. It's a long time. So we have a guest today. Mm, boy, do oh we have God. a guest. We do have a really special guest today. We. We have a legend and a personal hero for both of us. Gordon Bakulis uh, 
she's really near and dear to both of our hearts. Uh, she's been coaching New York Roadrunners group training since the beginning of both of our experiences there. We could probably spend the entire episode listing Gordon's accomplishments, but we want to actually let her do the talkings. So why don't we just do an abbreviated version? Can you walk us through some of some of Gordon's accomplishments? Sure. Uh, Gordon is currently the editor, sorry, the editorial director at the New York Roadrunners. And she also coaches group training in Central Park. Gordon qualified for the U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials five times uh, in 1988, 1992, 1996, 2000, and 2004. Apparently, like only a fraction of people can do that compared to the number of people that can qualify for the Olympic trials in the marathon. So, wow. Um, Gordon represented the United States at the 1989 World Cup Marathon, the 1991 World Championships Marathon, the 1992 World Championships Half Marathon, and the 1992 Beijing International Ekaden. I think that's how you pronounce that. Um, Gordon has PRs of 233.01 at the 1989 New York City Marathon, 111 in the half marathon, and 32.45 in the 10K. Incredible. Wow. Uh, Gordon is an eight-time winner of the New York Roadrunners Runner of the Year Award, and in 2010, she won Runner of the Decade for 2000 to 2009. It's unbelievable. She's the, one of the fastest female New Yorkers in New York. Uh, Gordon has written countless articles for, for Runner's World, and she's authored three books on running uh, titled Getting Real About Running, Cross Training, and third, How to Train For and Run Your Best Marathon. Gordon was the founding coach of Athena New York women's running team. My goodness, Gordon, welcome to Chill Track Friday. We're so honored to have you. Thanks, Anne. Thanks, Ali. I'm really happy to be here. Oh, you're such an inspiration to us and so many of the group training runners and I'm sure people that don't even know you personally, but your trajectory in the running world is just such a beautiful thing. And so we just wanted to have you on so you could talk a little bit about your journey and how you got where you are today and some of the, the peaks and valleys because it's such a journey and you have such a wonderful perspective on running and life and you're such a wise person who Thank you. Both Thanks admire. a lot. And I just wanted to say you guys inspire me as well, especially um, since you've launched this podcast. I love it. I love <laughs> Chill Track Friday. And I listen to a lot of podcasts, a lot of running podcasts, and this one's awesome. So thank <laughs> Thanks. you. Thanks. Just follow that dream. Oh, thanks, Gordon. Thank you. So we're going to start early, go back, go back in time. Um, <laughs> Which is a long time ago, right? <laughs> As you know. Yeah. Um, do you come from an athletic family? Yes, I would say yes. Um, I, I didn't know that until um, relatively late in life. My grandfather, if you want to go way back, my father's father, was a Greek immigrant. He came to this country on his own in... Um, 1913. He was like 14 years old by himself um, and made his way to Princeton, New Jersey. That's a whole long story. Um, but we found, yeah, 15 years ago, 
um, an essay that he'd written when he was a student at Princeton about his arrival in Princeton, um, which was a mistake. He was not supposed to get off the train at Princeton, but he did. And it was a beautiful spring morning with a gentle rain falling, as he writes, and he just started to run. <laughs> Unless he made the whole thing up. Um, and he just wrote an essay about running through the landscape, which he'd never been to before, and um, how, how much that meant to him, how it put him in touch with his surroundings immediately. Um, and he later went on to, as a student at Princeton, um, run on the track team. We don't really have any information on what he did, how he did, blah, blah, blah. But we have some photos of him in uh, running gear from the 20s, which is awesome. And my dad, um, his son, was the coxswain. He also went to Princeton, and he was the coxswain on the, for the crew team. So he was athletic in that regard. Um, and he discovered running relatively late in life. Um, he, during most of my childhood, was um, an active alcoholic, and um, it was pretty bad. Um, he almost lost his life a couple of times and went into rehab a couple of times. And then when I was 14, he um, really hit bottom, which is often the case in those situations. And um, was able to um, enter recovery through Alcoholics Anonymous, and which he had done before um, and had relapsed. But that time, this was the fall of 1975, the running boom was kind of getting its legs, if you will. And someone, I don't know who, suggested that he take up running. And um, so he did that in the winter of 1976. Um, as a recreational runner, which was just sort of becoming a thing at that time. Um, you know, Frank Shorter had won the gold medal in 1972, um, and the running boom was really kind of getting rolling in the mid-70s. Mid so um, I really do think, and I think he felt as well, that the, uh, the running and his recovery, which lasted until the end of his life um, in 2002, he never went back to drinking, and he was able to give up smoking later as well. Um, played a role in in um, his sobriety um, sticking that time. So he eventually got interested in road racing, and he ran the New York City Marathon in 1978, and we still have the finisher certificate um, and some photos from that race. and. Um, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but when I ran last year, when I ran New York last year, that was the 40th anniversary of his run in New York, so that was kind of cool. Um, he ran in 1979, but he dropped out at 18, is how he had told it, and then he ran and finished in 1980. So he has two New York City Marathon finishes, um, two hours, excuse me, four hours and 39 minutes, and four hours and 30 minutes, that was his PR. So yeah, yeah, I do come from an athletic family. My mom um, was an athlete as well. She had played soccer or uh, field hockey, basketball. She was never much of a runner. She tried it and just wasn't for her, but she was, she was a very active walker and um, had been you know, quite the athlete in her, in her prime, to the extent that women could mm -hmm. back then. So. Um, I got into competitive running relatively late, although it feels like a million years ago now. Um, 
1978, which was my senior year of high school in the fall, I had become really close friends with um, a lot of the people on the track and cross country team, especially a, um, a woman, a girl who lived around the corner from me, um, Amelia, and she had run cross country and then she wanted to take off the, the uh, winter track season, but stay in shape. And I kind of wanted to do the same thing. I had played field hockey and wanted to not do a winter sport, but stay in shape and then go out for lacrosse in the spring. So she said, well, why don't we run together? And I said, when, how, <laughs> how does one do that? Um, she said, well, before school. I was like, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> Typical teenager, you know, I would, and we lived like not far from school. So I would get up as late as possible to make it to school on time at the very last minute. Um, but I said, okay, I'll try. So um, it took a while to, for this to kind of get off the ground with me. And there were a few days, because um, she was determined to do it. And she had done it before. Um, and she would, um, she made me commit. And she, if I didn't meet on the corner as at the time uh, we had planned, she would come over and throw pebbles at the window and get, me to get up and get out and get running. So that was awesome um, in so many ways. Again, these runs were, they were pretty unstructured. I mean, the meeting time was set, but where we went, how far we went was pretty unstructured. You know, neither of us were keeping a log or anything like that. Um, they were really fun, you know, like our friendship just went from like mid-level to like best friends um, within like four or five days. Um, I had never really seen what my neighborhood was like before people got up. That was really cool. And just that accountability, it really appealed to me, um, really appealed to me a lot. You know, like it, the pebbles against the window only had to happen like two times before I was like, okay, I am meeting <laughs> you every morning. We're, we're not going to, uh, I'm not going to mess this up. Um, so that went on from like November, December, January, February. And by February, I was like, why do I want to go out for the lacrosse team again? I can't really remember. So I decided to go out for the track team. And this was um, spring of 1979. And um, immediately, my talent came to the fore. I really didn't know that I had a talent for running before then. Um, so I was 18. And um, my first timed mile was, was like 540 or something. And you know, on really just having done these, you know, like three or four times a week, three mile runs in the mornings with, with Amelia. Um, so that kind of changed things for me. Um, when I went to college in the fall um, at the University of Virginia, I did approach the team and um, asked about being a walk-on, which I knew a couple of the women on the team who had been walk-ons. And they said, yeah, it's really hard, but you know, you can do it. Come talk to the coach, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I had a long talk with the coach. And I was like, no, <laughs> I can't do this. <laughs> they were running 100 miles a week. They were, you know, they had curfews. They had a lot of travel on the weekends. It was a Division I school, um, and that was just such a huge step up from where I was physically, um, where I was emotionally, you know, where I was in terms of maturity. Um, and I think it was a really wise decision not to pursue that route or not to try to pursue that route. I don't know how it would have worked out. So through college, I really just ran for, um, for sanity and uh, you know, stress relief. Um, with a few blips along the way. I actually, um, my freshman year, after uh, deciding not to run track, um, I developed a pretty serious eating disorder, which really had nothing to do with running. Um, 
but actually curtailed my running um, almost completely. I just got to the point where I was too weak to, to do much physical activity at all. Um, and that's a whole long story that I won't go into, but um, except to say that running actually um, helped with my coming out of that about a year later, um, which, because it just, um, I missed it. Mm -hmm. I missed running. Um, I missed that strength and power that it gave me. I missed the kind of daily check-in um, with, you know, my body, um, my psyche, you know, just sort of the, uh, everything, all the good things that, that we know that running, running brings to us. Um, and yeah, so, and also I couldn't articulate this at the time, but having grown up with alcoholism in my family, which created a lot of stress, a lot of trauma, um, there was a lot of, you know, sort of economic, um, instability in my family. Um, and adults, when they're alcoholics, they, they behave badly. Um, you know, they, they do things that when, if they're able to recover, they look back on. And um, one of the steps in the program is to, to make amends, you know, for the people that you've hurt. And there is a lot of real hurt that, that happened and happens. Um, and you sort of, as someone who's living with that, not as the active addict, um, you develop coping strategies. And one of mine was to sort of disengage, like not engage with problems, not engage even with situations. And I had found, I remember that running um, was a great antidote to that, that it, uh, you can't disengage as a runner. You, you have to, whatever is happening, engage with it and deal with it. Um, and that's what running is. Um, whether you're competitive or just recreational, it's, um, at a certain point, you're going to encounter a problem or a difficulty or a challenge, you know, whether it's, gee, I'm just really tired because I went out too fast and now it's late in the race, but it's not over and I just want to stop. Or I'm developing an injury and I don't know what to do, you know, should I back off? Should I try to run through it? Um, or, wow, the weather really sucks, you know, how am I going to deal with uh, you know, as you talked about a few episodes ago, uh, 30 mile an hour headwinds and severe rain and low temperatures at the Boston Marathon. Um, so you have to engage. And that running, I, I missed that. So um, I was very happy um, as I um, built my strength back up after the eating disorder to, uh, to re-engage with running. But I didn't compete um, really until, um, until I moved to New York which was uh, 1983. I graduated and moved here and got a job in magazines, magazine publishing, and, um, you know, didn't have, uh, suddenly I had a job to go to. You know, it was like back in high school where the only way I could fit in my running was to get up really early and do it. So I did that, um, ran in the park. And my friend Amelia, as it happens, was in New York as well. So we would sometimes run together. Um, and then I, I had to move to New Jersey, um, long, long story, but I was living in Weehawken, New Jersey and uh, um, met a guy. Um, we weren't romantically involved, we were just friends and we started running together. Um, and he was training for the marathon, this was 1984 by now. And he said, or he was planning to do it, it was like in the spring, he hadn't really started his training yet. He said, you know, you should do the marathon, you know, like everyone does, you know, a new, <laughs> new runner, I was a relatively new runner to him. 
um, not having ever done a marathon. Oh, you should do it. And as it happens, Amelia had been having the same thought, like, let's just do the marathon. You know, we'll just do one. You know, we'll never have to do it again. We were 23. So I was like, sure. So we applied through the, the lottery, the drawing, got in um, and trained. So I tra- did some of my training with Amelia, <coughs> excuse me, most of it with Paul, the guy. Um, and we trained for the 1984 New York City Marathon. And as it happens, that was still, I think, the worst weather on record for New York. It was still in October that year. Um, It was just unseasonably warm and extremely humid. So um, Paul was like, oh, you know, you you probably shouldn't do it. This was like morning of. I'm like, what do you mean I probably shouldn't do it? (laughs) (laughs) And he said, all right, well, you know, then don't set a time goal. And like, I was never going to set a time goal. You know, this is really just about participating and finishing and, you know, being able to say for the rest of my life, hey, I did a marathon. Um, and so that's what I did. Um, I ran, Paul went way ahead and then had to walk for most of the race or a lot of the race um, and still did 309. So he was really good. Um, but I um, ran super steady, super focused, super controlled, you know, took a lot of water. Um, and about two thirds of the way through or so, First Avenue, Upper First Avenue, just started passing people like they were going backwards. And I had run with Amelia through halfway, and then I I felt really good. And she said, "No, you just go. I'm fine, but you know, I want you to have your race, and I'll have my race." And I ran three hours, forty minutes, and three seconds. Uh-huh. I still had the finisher certificate, <laughs> and she ran three fifty four. So you know, not not bad, but. I was like, oh my gosh, that was so great. I can't wait to do another. And she's like, never again. Like, what language are you speaking? What do you mean do another? What are you talking about? Um, And to this day, I've done uh, 33 and she has just done the one. So there you go. It's uh, the marathon means different things to different people. Where is Amelia today? She's in uh, California on the West Coast. We keep in touch. Running friends for life. That's amazing. We live very different lives. Um, She is an art historian, uh, works at uh, UCLA, and is in charge of the um, Roski Center for the Arts. She's she's a real mover and shaker in her field, a real superstar. Um, The following year, 1985, I was still running, um, and I started posting some good times in in races. Uh, I ran a 37-minute 10K. And um, a local running coach, um, Bob Glover, who uh, coached a women's running team called Atalanta at the time, um, recruited me. He um, had a member of his team, someone who had run at UVA, who knew me. And so through her, um, asked me to to join the team. And I remember um, the first workout, I was like so nervous. like, what am I getting into? And uh, my boyfriend at the time, I said, I don't know, this sounds like the Marines, you know, they like do really hard workouts. And, do you remember what the workout was? Uh, yes, I do. As a matter of fact, thank you for asking. It was, um, it was eight by 800. Wow. Okay. Right? It's <laughs> a good one to jump into. <laughs> I mean, just straight to like, oh, la la, loops around the reservoir. Isn't this fun? Um, to, yeah, yeah, really, really hard stuff. Um, and but I liked it. I liked um, I liked that it was an all women's group. Um, the year before, 1984, had been the first women's Olympic 
um, marathon with Joan Benoit Samuelson, of course, winning the gold medal. Um, and so, you know, women's running was really on the map. Um, it was very, it was a very exciting time as a as a woman distance runner in this country to be to be getting into it. Um, and I, you know, initially felt like, oh, I've missed out. I missed the first women's Olympic trials. Oh darn! Um, but almost immediately, like, got just got caught up in the in the here and now. Um, and I think that year my half marathon time was like 116, 117. So that indicated that I I had the potential to qualify for the trials. The standard that year was 251. It used to be a lot easier. Um, the time used to be a lot a lot slower than it is now. I believe now it's 245. Although I'd have to look that up to be sure. Um, I was like, okay, 251. You know, and I really had not yet developed a sense of what times mean and. Um, you know what to aim for and that sort of thing and and um bob was somewhat helpful but he was a big believer and i i really credit him for this um with you know uh, a big believer in running by feel so he said you know you really have to control your your pace control um your sense of you know how hard you're working early on in the race and um you know if if you're if it's if it feels like you can take a shot at it um, with like 10 miles to go, you know, go for it, try to work on pace at that point, but up until that point, cause this still was only going to be my second marathon, you know, I'd done the, the mm-hmm. 340 and then the grandma's in 87 was really only my second marathon. So, um, long story short, we had great weather that day, tailwind, all kinds of good stuff working in our favor. And I ran 246, which qualified me. So that was, that was awesome. That was just like a whole world opening up that I really hadn't thought existed, you know, as, as recently as a year before. Um, and it was amazing. The, those years I look back on um, from like 87 through mid 90s or so as, you know, what an opportunity. What, what a great time to be a woman runner in, in this country, um, to be young, you know, young enough that I felt like I was gonna continue to improve for, you know, maybe another decade or so. Um, to develop camaraderie with a, a really, really great group of women um, who ran with with Atalanta um, and other women in, in New York and, and um, eventually nationally as well as I started to make national teams and stuff like that. Um, but there were some there were some blips for sure. Um, eventually, my relationship with Bob really went sour, unfortunately. Um, he was a great coach, is a great coach. Um, but um, he was a prickly character, um, very combative in a way that I'm not at all. I'm very conciliatory. I'm very much into finding common ground with people. I don't like to have enemies. I don't like to make enemies. Um, sorry, I get a little emotional sometimes talking about it because it was a little traumatic. Um, and I was young still. I was still, you know, late 20s, early 30s. and. Um, I handled it very clumsily, but I left the team um, very abruptly um, to his mind, kind of out of the blue, um, although it has sort of been brewing in my mind for for years that this wasn't working. Um, And um, was self-coached for a little while, but that wasn't working. So I started working with a coach in Colorado, um, coaching me remotely, Benji Durden. And eventually that led to my training a couple of times out in Colorado, which was amazing, which was great. Um, Benji was super laid back, super um, 
like me personality wise, you know, sort of chill, sort of, you know, everyone loved Benji, had a lot of friends. That worked out really well. That was a really good coach-athlete relationship. I would say it was hard though, being coached long distance. Um, and we didn't have all the communications that we have today. We didn't have, you know, we faxed a lot. <laughs> we talked on the phone. Sometimes would we, you write it out? Yeah, like you'd write it out like and you know, then print it and then like either right. mail it or fax it. You know, it was a different world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Then, 1992, the best year and the worst year for running for me. Um, in, the, in January was the Olympic trials. Um, Oh, and I'm sorry, I skipped right over the 1988 Olympic trials, which were also really life-changing for me because um, I ran another big PR, not a 54-minute PR, but a nine-minute PR. So I went from 246 to 237 in the trials in Pittsburgh in 1988. And um, I wasn't running with the leaders at any point, but I really felt like I was a part of the race that was selecting the Olympic team, which so you, for me, I felt like it, it doesn't get any better than this. It doesn't get any bigger than this. It doesn't get any more. Um, I never thought about making the Olympic team. I mean, you know, it's a trials race. Anything can happen, but I didn't see myself at that level. And I truly was not at that level. But, you know, the winners ran 229 and I ran 237. I mean, that's, you know, you can sort of like see your future um, that and it was a great experience just to be around all those women, to meet a lot of them for the first time, um, and to feel like, yeah, I, I belong here. This is, you know, not just a show. It's I'm not here for show. I'm here because I'm, you know, one of the best runners in the country. And I was 17th, um, so to be in the top 20 was was really spectacular. Um, and the next few years were were really. Um, uh, mostly excellent for me you know I really I'm not injury prone overall so for most of the time I was I was healthy and running well um, in 1989 I ran New York um, and having run you know the 340 and then this time I was you know part of the elite start it wasn't a separate start but I was right on the, the starting line um, I was uh, you know really a, a contender there as well that race did not go well for me, although it is still my lifetime PR. Um, went out too fast, ran 114-119, ouch. So, <laughs> and I always say, I mean, there's a lot of shoulda, coulda, woulda, so when you look back on your running career, they shoulda had goo, because if they had <laughs> an energy gel, it was a fueling issue. Um, it was, you know, a, a misjudging the pace, but exacerbated by I was like so hungry and you know I had taken Gatorade and taken Gatorade but you, you want you want something solid you know mm -hmm. I was like hallucinating about you know platters of filet mignon <laughs> and I was like oh I'm so hungry and um so I was past I was in fifth in like at mile 25.5 and I finished eighth so that kind of shows you how the race went and there's mm -hmm. a picture of me in the fin in the finishing stretch and you can almost see me wobbling on my feet because it was just like ah um, but anyway, you know, 233. That, and so I finished that race feeling like 229. It's right around the corner. You know, if I can run 233 feeling as crappy as I did, I never, I, any day now I'll run 229. But I never did. So that, that ended up being my lifetime PR. It was a perfect day in terms of the weather. The race went great really up until like mile 24 and a half. And then it just went so bad. Um, but so it goes. And then um, 
so leading up to 1992, you know, I was I was a contender. I'd been ranked in the top 10 in 89, 90, 91 in, in the U.S. Um, and in 92, the trials were to be held in Houston, Texas. And uh, I went down to train for a month beforehand. Um, oh, and I, I'm sorry, I do blip over things. In 1991, I represented the U.S. at the World Championships Marathon, which unfortunately went terribly wrong. Um, I had to drop out. So the two DNFs in my marathoning career, really in my running career, I don't think I've dropped out of any shorter race, were the um, New York in 86 and the World Championships in Tokyo in 1991. I had developed Giardia, which is a, a bacterial parasite, and just could not keep anything down at all. I did not know what it was until afterwards. I was diagnosed when I got home and put on a medication that cleared it up like that. I mean, I just went from like chronic diarrhea to, oh, great, feel fine, like overnight. Wow. Um, but unfortunately, the, the timing um, didn't, didn't work to my advantage. So um, aside from that really, really bad disappointment in 1991, um, it had been, you know, not a fairy tale, but you know, I, I feel like, I felt like I was really achieving my potential as a runner. Um, and in 92, as I said, you know, the trials were to be held in Houston. So I went down a month before um, and stayed with a, a coach down there, Jim McClatchy and his wife, Carol McClatchy, who's a phenomenally gifted runner. Um, she's 10 years older than I am, so she's long retired now, but she had held um, national records and, you know, been part of the, the vanguard. Um, not quite at the level of like a Joan Benoit Samuelson, but, you know, definitely. Um, a national class runner for for years um, and that was awesome he was a great coach he um, introduced me to the world of massage which was like whoa that's amazing what that could do um, and Carol they're just very funny people and uh, Scottish and just I enjoyed spending a, a month with them the race went fairly well um, I ran with the lead pack till about 16 and you know, when you get to the high levels of the sport, it's hard um, sometimes to figure out a race strategy, or it was for me, um, even working closely with Benji. You know, do you, it's top three. So if you're there to make the team, which I was, you know, I felt I had a shot at it. Um, what do you do if the pace is just a little bit too fast, um, which it was that day. The winners all ended up running 2.30. They finished like, you know, I don't know, 2.30.14, 2.30.20 something, and 2.30.30. Um, and we hit 1.15 at the half. Um, it was too fast for me. So I ended up running, um, I finished eighth. That seems to be a popular number for me. And ran 2.35. Um, and similar to New York in 89, I did get passed by two people in the in the final mile. So that was disappointing, but I, I felt like, and I still feel to this day, if I had it to do over again, I'd run the same race. I would, I would not try to run 26 miles on my own, which is what I would have had to do, um, you know, sticking completely to a pace strategy. Um, so um, I was really, I was really pleased with that result and and fired up for 96. Um, although a little voice in my head was starting to say, uh, you know, if you want to have kids at some point, you better start thinking about that. Um, I had been married from 1988 to 19, actually my marriage was unraveling right around that time, ended up getting, separating in 92 and then getting divorced in 1994. Um, but I was thinking, um, you know, 
I could have kids on my own. That's okay. But the the, the click ticking clock thing was kind of in my head. But um, I was still looking ahead to 1996. So um, the rest of 92 was a real roller coaster. I um, did very well in the spring. I ran a lot on the track, and I actually qualified without realizing it um, for the 10,000 meter trials. So that was being held at the Penn Relays. That was a great race. That was really fun. What was the time you ran? Um, 3304. That's amazing. I have them all in here. I I, I do have them written down somewhere, but I I remember that one because it was really special. The standard was like 3308, so I sort of squeaked in. Can you describe that feeling? Yeah. When I I found out that I had qualified for the trials? Well, that and and like just running that race at that level. I mean, doing a 10K in that. I I, I guess if I had to talk about any regrets that I have, it would be that I didn't spend more time on the track. I didn't, you know, I didn't, Mm -hmm. that wasn't my background. I'd done that one season in um, high school. um, And it's so much fun. And it's it's really I like the precision of it. I like the um, the feedback from the crowd, the feedback from the you know the the watch. You know they give you your your split. They, you have a bell lap. You you really know like exactly mm-hmm. what you are doing at any given point and how far you've come and how far you have to go and how fast you're going in terms of miles, in terms of quarter miles, in terms of you know where everyone is. Um, you can see, you know, without, you obviously can't turn around or you, you shouldn't turn around to see who's right behind you, but uh, it's very intimate and very um, intense. And I just, I had fun with it. Um, it felt great to go to the trials in, um, they were in New Orleans that year. Um, and I don't think I did feel that I was a contender to make that team um, in 92. Lynn Jennings was a lock. Uh, Judy St. Hilaire was pretty much a lock. Um, and I am embarrassed to say I don't remember who's the third woman who made that team, but we could look it up. Um, the trials race, it was that year they had um, a semifinal and a final in New Orleans. So they flew us down um, a week. You know, we were in New Orleans for like a week. So we ran the semifinal, which was very slow. It was very late at night. It was literally started at 11.30. So we sort of, you know, by the time it finished, it was the next day. Um, I just remember it was so humid and there was nobody in the stadium. And there were all these moths around the lights, like Mm. hundreds of moths. And, And I just kept thinking to myself, I better be careful I don't swallow a moth, you know, like during this race. It sounds kind of cinematic. Yeah, <laughs> like definitely. Really yeah. atmospheric, yeah. And um, Benji wasn't there. He he did he decided not to come kind of at the last minute. And But um, Tom Fleming, who I'd become friends with, uh, a coach in New Jersey, who very sadly passed away a couple of years ago, um, died, died young, age 65. Funniest guy you will ever meet. He's a two-time winner of the New York City Marathon big guy, um, always was like the biggest runner with like tree trunk legs, you know, not like a lithe little Kenyan at all. Um, you know, and would always like self-deprecatingly talk about, oh, I'm, you know, the biggest, you know, I'm the fastest guy over 165 pounds, you know, who's ever <laughs> run the planet. And yeah, so he was, he was there and he was like cheering and cheering, you know, do it, do it from New Jersey. And I was like, I'm not really from there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> 
So <laughs> I love the thoughts you remember that uh, went through. Right? Yeah. Like the crazy random stuff that you yeah. remember. Like 1992 was like 27 years ago. And I remember what Tom Fleming said to mm-hmm. me from the side of the track. So, um, but anyway, this is the part of the story that gets a little dark. I don't know if you guys know this. Um, I felt great, you know, went back to the hotel, was like, I can spend a week in New Orleans. This is so awesome. And the next day I felt awful. You know, I was like, yeah, I didn't run that hard. We ran like 34 minutes and, you know, and it really wasn't, you know, I'm trained to run almost 32 minutes, you know, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I'll feel better. I'll just sleep all day and I'll feel better. And it just got worse and worse. I felt so horrible, you know, and so it went from like, well, maybe I better scale back my goals to there's no way. I don't know what's wrong with me, but there's just no way that I can participate. So they had a, you know, they had medical people there, of course, and they checked me out and uh, there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with you, but just see your doctor when you get home. You know? So I went home, um, you know, continued to hope whatever. I just thought I had the flu or something or had really, you know, stressed myself out, not just with that race, but with the, the whole spring season. I'd run a lot of track races, you know, traveled a lot. Um, but it just got really bad. And so I went to the doctor finally and he said, um, have you been spending a lot of time outdoors? And I said, yeah, a lot of time outdoors. He goes, have you ever been tested for Lyme disease? And I said, yeah, no, no, you know what? And I said, but I never saw the bullseye rash. And he said, no, you often don't. Let's test you for Lyme disease. And sure enough, that's what it was. Um, so thank goodness I was not like psychosomatic because I never did get to run the final. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was, I was just mm-hmm. flat on my back. I watched it on TV. It was it was really wow. sad. Um, so we, um, he said, you know, you just take a course of antibiotics, you'll be fine. Now at the time, I was you know a high level athlete um, being drug tested frequently. Mm-hmm. So and I knew that antibiotics were were safe to take. And I said, um, yeah, okay, you know, just what am I being given? Oh, amoxicillin. Okay, I said, okay, that's fine. So I took. Um, amoxicillin and he said and here you need to take this as well it's called probenicid and it um it enhances the effects of the antibiotics by um retaining water in the kidneys so okay fine you know how could that possibly how what could go wrong so did that i was better like immediately um went off to running camp you know just did my whole summer thing um set a pr at 10K, I ran 32.45, so that's my lifetime PR for 10K, Um, tied my PR for 5K, Um, and then in the fall, um, I was planning to do New York, and in September, like two days before the World Half Marathon Championships in England, I got a call and said, one of the athletes can't come, can you, at the last minute, make this team join this team in in Gateshead to run the World Half Marathon Championships. I said, sure. Um, Ran that race super jet lagged, but it ended up being my lifetime PR for half marathon as well. It was like, I couldn't go out too fast. I was like asleep on the roadway beforehand (laughs) and no expectations at all. You know, I'd been like subbed in at the last minute. Um, and ended up running 111.34 and like passing people in the last mile. I passed Colleen DeRook in the last mm-hmm. like 200 meters and she wasn't the athlete she eventually became, but she was still pretty good. I remember thinking, wow, I'm passing Colleen DeRook. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, set a ton of PRs and then was set to run New York um, in 1992 and, and did that. Um, and 
came so close to my PR. I ran 233 again, just a, two, a little bit slower than the 233.01 I'd run in 1989. Um, and then I was drug tested. So I don't know if you can see where this is going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, got a call from USA Track and Field about two weeks later. And I was like, oh, hi, how are you doing? I'm sorry I didn't tell you I am back from Colorado because I had gone out to train again. Um, Benji had invited me out to, to stay with with them and um, trained for about a month leading into New York. Didn't work. I could do a whole other podcast on altitude training and how you, you have yes. to do it right. I did like everything wrong. Everything that I could possibly do wrong with the altitude training I did. So it's great if you know what you're doing, but I didn't and it didn't go well. Um, and so no, she said, no, that's not why I'm calling. Uh, I said, well, I'm, I'm here. I'm back in New York. You know, what's what's up? Um, well, you you failed your drug test. I was like, what? Even I failed my drug test, and she said, "Yeah, there was a, a banned substance found in your in your A sample. Um, now you have the right for to request us to test the B sample um, before we announce uh, the doping violation and suspend you for four years." Oh my god! Like, what <laughs> did you just say? Um, I said, "Yeah, test the B sample." And I said, "What was the substance? Can you tell me?" And she said, "Yeah, it's probenicid." Mm-hmm. I said, "Yeah, I took. Oh, yeah, I took that last last uh, June after the the uh, 10K trials because I was, uh, you know, taking antibiotics for Lyme disease." And she said, "Well, it's a banned substance." I said, "What? You know?" And then immediately I was like, "Is it a performance enhancer? Like, how could something that like makes your kidneys retain water?" enhance your performance she said no 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 it's not a performance enhancer and I exhaled a little bit because I was like god have I you know because I had done really well Mm -hmm. that year and I was like have all those performances been because I was on something that was like artificially boosting my Mm -hmm. ability to run fast and she said no not that we know of it's just it um it's a masking agent and people so people who are taking Mm -hmm. drugs when they find out they're going to be drug tested they take probenicid and then they, you know, when they pee, it it doesn't contain the drugs that they were taking. I was like, wow, really? That works? And she said, well, actually, no, it doesn't work. But we banned <laughs> it anyway <laughs> because people were using it and, you know, it's on the banned substance list. Wow. And I said, well, you know, like, that's just a technicality. You know, I wasn't cheating, right? And she said, well, you failed the drug test. You know, the rule, these are the rules, you know, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, long story short, they, you know, did the B sample. Of course, that was positive as well. And that was that. And so at first I thought it was like, okay, you know, four years, you can't be, you can't represent your country. So I, you know, won't be able to make the Olympic team in 96. I was like doing the math frantically in my head, like, oh, when are the Olympics in 96? You know, maybe if they're later in the year and da, da, da. It's like, no, you cannot race at all for four years because any event that you're in, you're tainted. So it would taint the event. So you can't race at all, period, end of story. And I said, you know, what's, is there an appeal process? Is there this, is there that? She said, um, yes, you know, you can appeal, but you just told me that you actually took this drug. And I, you know, as part of my job, my job would be if I were called to testify in the appeal to say that you admitted taking the drug. I said, well, I did take the drug. I'm not gonna say that I didn't, you know, and here's why. So. We went through the appeal that was denied, um, and I was I was really despondent. You know, anyone would be. It really ranks still as one of the worst things that ever happened to me, with sort of no 
redeeming value, like bad things happen to you, you know, your people close to you die, you know, you get divorced, whatever. But I don't mean to minimize any of those things at all. Um, I've lost both my parents and, you know, grieved for them terribly, but it was the natural order of things. And there's sort of rituals that you go through to move through the process of grief and what have you. Um, this just seemed to have no redeeming mm -hmm. value and no, like, silver lining at all. You know, like, I just made a dumb mistake and now I had to live with it and I felt like such an idiot and, you know, everyone felt bad for me, but nobody could do anything about it. And at a certain level, I just felt like, well, I deserved it. You know, I really, like... You know, I could have looked it up so easily and I, or I could have just not taken the drug, you know, just taken the antibiotics and it would have taken, you know, two weeks to heal rather than two days or whatever. So um, people really rallied to help me, um, even though there wasn't a whole lot people could do initially. Um, my sponsor, Moving Comfort, was solidly in my corner. Um, publicly and, and behind the scenes. Um, Benji was really, really supportive, lots of phone calls, um, you know, lots of outreach. Um, the manager of Moving Comfort, a guy named Jeff Darman, who had been um, really involved in the athletes' rights movement in the early 80s when um, track and field was an amateur sport and the athletes had to fight really hard to professionalize it so they could earn a living. It was sort of what Steve Prefontaine started, but then tragically, you know, he himself was unable to finish because of his untimely death, but uh, they carried the torch and professionalized the sport um, in the 80s. Um, he just kept pressing me to not give up hope and to um, not feel like it was my fault um, and to not um, feel like there was nothing we could do. And eventually he connected me with an attorney who recommended that we um, file a brief with the American Arbitration Association on the basis of my due process rights being denied, that I was being held guilty until proven innocent. And I just, you know, I said to him privately in meetings, you know, I am guilty. And he said, well, you know, you're, it's, you haven't, you, this has not gone before a court of law. Said, okay, we can try it. You know, it didn't sound very hopeful. So long, long story short, because this dragged on for many months um, into 1993, um, we eventually did file the brief, and USA Track and Field um, and the American Ar uh, through the American Arbitration Association and um, my attorney, we, we were able to settle, and I was reinstated. Um, and the day after I was reinstated was the mini in 1993. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing was seven months of wow. really tough, 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 tough for me. Um, again, just feeling ashamed, you know, feeling like such an idiot. I'm actually glad there was no social media at the time because I could sort of hide a little bit. When mm -hmm. I went for runs, I just sort of wanted to put like a bag over my head or something. But other than that, people, you know, couldn't really get at me because there were just so fewer avenues to, to do that. Um, but anyway, the mini was in June of 1993, and um, I had stayed fit because um, it, it was started to look good in about mid-April or so, like this was going to work against all odds. Um, and I still have mixed feelings about it. You know, it was like, I think I'm not, I'm speaking for myself, not for any other institution, including USA Track and Field. I think they just wanted it to go away, to be honest. It was an embarrassment to them. 
And the drug problem was huge at the time. It's not like something that just started a few years ago. It was a big, big problem. And I think they felt like this is not the problem. This should not be deflecting attention away from mm-hmm. the problem. And, and I also want to just emphasize here that I'm very anti-drug. I'm very, very much in favor of a clean sport um, as much as the next runner. You know, I just can't imagine being, you know, Frank Shorter, who will never have what should rightfully be the words that follow his name, which are double Olympic gold medalist because of the East German state-sponsored mm-hmm. doping system that robbed him of his gold medal in Montreal in 1976. You know, I can't imagine being Don Cardong, who was fourth in that race by three seconds and will never be, ever be Don Cardong Olympic medalist, which he should be. I can't imagine being Shalane Flanagan for nine years, you know, Olympic bronze medalist and then Olympic silver medalist, you know, and just, yeah, that's great that that finally happened, but those nine years mm-hmm. of being denied what is rightfully hers. I mean, I'm I'm absolutely virulently against cheating and drug use in sport in any way, shape, or form. Um, and, you know, zero tolerance. It's just, you know, and, and because it's so strict is partly why my, my saga was so awful. You know, why they had to have this drug that didn't work as a a masking agent still on the banned substance list well because you know there might some you know they always have to stay like one step ahead of the cheaters and you know there might somehow someday be a way that someone could use probenicid in a bad way anyway um the mini was amazing because i i had stayed fit and i ended up finishing um in 33 um and placing as the top american um and that was just the sweetest moment it was it's almost the most meaningful race of my life on a certain level um, and you've then I always, just kept going. You, you've always said that. I've heard you say the importance of mini yeah. to you, but I didn't realize yeah. the story behind it. Yeah, so. the mini is special in so many ways, you know, separate from me and my that, that particular year and that story. It's really special. I've run it 27 times now, <laughs> and uh, every year is special, but that one was, was really, really sweet. Um, and I just moved on. I moved on really quickly. I made sure to thank everyone who had helped me, um, which involved a lot of phone calls, because again, I couldn't just <laughs> post it on Facebook. Um, I don't know, I, I keep harping on this, sorry. Um, but uh, I, I moved on, and that year ended up being an amazing year as well. As I mentioned, I stayed fit, and the way I'd stayed fit was working out with Central Park Track Club, who had really extended um, a, an invitation to me when um, somehow word got around that I was going to be reinstated most likely. And they said, you know, if you want to do workouts with us, you know, we'd love to have you. And that's how I met my husband. So <laughs> I don't, we don't remember actually meeting each other, but it must have been at one of those workouts um, in the spring of 1993. And then that fall, we got better acquainted because we kept running into each other at races. And then we started dating um, in February of 94. So, but beyond, you know, just making sure I'd really thanked everyone, um, everyone, because really so many people were really loyal to me when they didn't have to be. Um, I, um, I moved on. Um, and then in the rest of the 90s, though, we, though, we did get married in 96 and had kids right away because um, I was in my mid to late 30s at that point. Um, and so I didn't compete as intensely, um, although I did qualify for the trials 
in both 96 and 2000 and um, was in both of those races. In 96, I ran 239. Um, they were in Columbia, South Carolina. And in 2000, I just had Sam, our second child, in the fall of 99. So I didn't have much time to prepare. Um, so I ran 250 in, uh, they were in Columbia, South Carolina as well. Um, and that race I remember primarily um, because it was so hard, <laughs> because it was just so hard to run a marathon on like very limited training while I was breastfeeding and, you know, with two tiny little ones. Um, and I qualified in 2004 as well, but didn't go. I was, I was trying to have a, we were trying to have a third baby and uh, I wasn't actually pregnant at, in 2004 at the time of the trials, but we, I just wasn't focusing on, on marathon running and competitive running really in general. Um, with the two little guys and, and trying to have a third. And that's it for part one of this episode. Thank you for listening. In part two, we'll discuss Gordon's impressive master's career. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.